Hello, it's me, Susan Flory. A big hello to you with special shout-outs to my new best friends, Jerry of Auckland, Sam of Toronto, and Joseph of Singapore. Huge thanks for your kind support of this podcast. And you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, head to susanflory.com and see how you too can help keep this podcast rolling along. And of course, I never do those calls of action at the end where I say, come on, get on and support me at Apple Podcasts and give me a review and all that. But please, pretty please, would you please? That would be great because so far, no marketing budget, just me wrestling with the tech, doing all the research. So I'd really love you to help me get this out to more ears. I want to thank you as well for the emails you send me. They're so, so kind. And tweets of appreciation of of the latest run of episodes I'm doing on how to maximize your metabolic health. I've had Prof. Tim Noakes, Graham Phillips, Tucker Goodrich, and a big breath. I am delighted to spoil you with none other than Ben Bickman, bioenergetics PhD, superstar scientist. He is seriously it when it comes to researching the role of insulin and fat cells in what he calls the plagues of prosperity. Ben, hello. Good morning. Good morning, Susan. I'm delighted to join you. Thanks for reaching out. I was so psyched when you said yes. Now, you're in Provo, Utah. You are an associate professor at Brigham Young University. Are you going to be lecturing today or is it, you know, Zoom action all day long? Yes, yes. So, yes, certainly the the academic setting has certainly changed over this last year. Uh, Today is not. So I have office hours and, and Zoom lecture tomorrow and so I'll be up to my eyeballs and my students tomorrow. But today is just a, a science day. I'll be in my lab across the hall more than anything else. And can we just acknowledge that that lab is, the official name is the Obesity and Metabolism Lab, but everybody calls it the Bickman Lab. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, just to keep it simple. Uh, it's, I, I like to joke that I'm a fat scientist <laughs> and that can be interpreted. That can be interpreted a couple different ways. But how cool is that? I mean, did you ever, in your wildest dreams, when you were just setting out, you were getting your master's in what was it, exercise physiology or pathophysiology? Yes. Did you yes. ever think I'm going to have my own laboratory at a major no. university? No. In fact, I like that you mentioned it was my master's degree when this transition occurred. I had gone into academia, graduate degrees, with the idea of studying muscle cells. And then it was this evolution during my master's degree where I became much more interested in fat cells. And that interest has lingered uh, to this to this point. So it was that was uh, 15 plus years ago. And, and my interest in the fat cell has only grown since then, which is apropos uh, given the fat cell and its growth. Yeah, given the explosion in obesity yeah. and all of, you know, the laundry list of metabolic syndrome diseases, all of that. So, I mean, there's so much terrain to get into. I want to take, you know, an overview, bird's eye view with some of this stuff and strip back some of the fascinating science, which is going to go over my head and the heads of a lot of the listeners of the big middle. So you're cool with that, right? Oh, well, then if it goes over the head, then I haven't done my job. So one thing I need to do in the, the wonderful challenge being a professor to 150, 20-year-olds is to make sure it goes right into the head, not over. So I think we'll do it. I know. Fantastic. And your book, I know that your publisher is sending me a copy, but it seems to have been stuck somewhere. Um, oh, no. Pandemic, slow chain. So I haven't been able to read it yet, but everybody raves about its readability. So that's that's fantastic. I mean, when you've got a message, you're putting it out there in terms that people can understand. And I suppose that's a byproduct of you being at the front, at the lectern, in front of many students. Oh, for sure. I absolutely credit my these every semester a new batch of of kids where i i joke with these students that i need to be sufficiently educational and entertaining that i can out compete instagram and facebook because every one of these kids is going to have their laptops right in front of them and at any moment they can be tempted to click away from professor bickman and and and, and just waste their time on social media so i find it a fun challenge to make sure that I am sufficiently competing with social media, that I keep their interest. And a part of that, of course, is to make sure I'm presenting something in a way that that gets that, that they get. It's have you ever level. had to call someone out? Have you ever had to say, Oh, Yo, for sure. Yeah. And I enjoy doing it. In fact, that's part of my the fun rapport that I like developing with these young kids every semester. I I enjoy 
teasing them and, and pointing it out when, you know, someone asks a question that I just spent five minutes um, explaining and they say, could you explain this? And I will say, are you serious? You must have been on Instagram for the past five minutes. And so I'm happy, happy to call them out. And I think more often than not, I hit the nail on the head. Or we've got to get you doing some more fasting to get your cognition up yes. <laughs> because yeah. honest to goodness, you are not getting it. Now I do yes. want to, I, I grabbed this off the internet. It was such a good comment. Dude is an amazing professor, very passionate, smart, and cares. Memorized every student's name before the first day of class. Freaked me out when he called on me by name day one. He's part of the reason I became a doctor. Oh my goodness. Where did you get that review? That's so nice. One of the 899 YouTube tutorials that I was oh listening to. Oh my goodness. To. Well, that's was... wonderful to hear. Yeah, yeah. So I confess I do in, in certain semesters, depending on how zealous I'm committed to the class that semester. I will, in fact, get a roster of the students ahead of time and just start looking at faces and, and sort of challenging myself to remember names. There's absolutely no question whatsoever. If I can show my students that I care about them to some degree, then they will care more about what I'm trying to teach them. Yeah, I, I think that is fantastic. Everyone likes to be seen and acknowledged. And that's just a fantastic way of doing it because we've all been in those lecture halls or conferences where someone's droning on at the front and you just like, yeah. oh, yawn. Let's get into your brain box. I want to get in first to the, the insulin fundamentals and the fascinating thing that got you into really scrutinizing fat cells. You say insulin is the fertilizer for our fat cells. Yes, uh, you cannot hope to understand the growing and the shrinking or in a broader sense, the life cycle of a fat cell if you remove insulin from this story. Uh, so the life of the fat cell is in large part determined by insulin. If you are hoping to grow a fat cell, um, then you must have elevated insulin to do so. In fact, I'll say that another way. It is impossible for a fat cell to grow unless, or fat tissue to grow, whether it's the individual fat cell itself growing or we're making new fat cells, that cannot happen unless insulin is elevated above fasting conditions. In contrast, if you hope to shrink a fat cell, that cannot happen unless insulin is at fasting levels, or in other words, insulin is lower than what you'd have um, when you've eaten, you know, starchy, sugary foods. And now someone may read between the lines and misinterpret what I'm saying. I don't intend to immediately say human obesity is absolutely a result of elevated insulin. I'm not saying that. Uh, and, and they would say, oh, well, Ben is claiming that calories don't matter. No, but I am saying any effort to understand human obesity that doesn't involve insulin is not going to be as accurate as it could be. And so the old dogmatic view that obesity is simply a matter of, uh, or, or human obesity is understood by understanding calories in, calories out, I would say, okay, that's fine. But you have to understand insulin in order to understand what the hormones are doing to calories in and calories out. Yeah. It's the whole biochemical response, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. the larger piece. I, before I had you on, I was saying, oh, I've got Ben Bickman on. I'm so excited. And I was talking with friends and families, mostly in their 30s, early 40s, and some are asking me, why are you going down this track with metabolic syndrome and diabetes? And you're talking about the parallel plague, you call it prosperity of, you know, metabolic syndrome and all these diseases. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing that? Because I don't have any problem with carbs. My mm. metabolism is, it's cooking on all cylinders or whatever, you know, well, I'm mixing up <laughs> metaphors. Yeah. There. Cooking but with gas or firing yeah, on cooking all cylinders. With gas, yeah. fire, that's it. That's it. My engine is going strong. So why should people in their 30s and 40s care? Hmm. What's happening at a biochemical level as we age, as we get into midlife with our energy metabolism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I understand uh, the fallacy of thinking you're bulletproof um, in your mid, in your 20s. Uh, and the evidence, unfortunately, does not support that view. There was a study published, I think, in 2019 by a scientist named Stephen Cunane, where they explored the degree to which young women's brains are affected in their glucose use. 
um, based on whether they were insulin resistant or not. So by way of very brief background, and I don't intend for this to be a tangent in and of itself, but Alzheimer's disease or early cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, which is a precursor to Alzheimer's disease, we can detect in, in these earliest stages of kind of pre-Alzheimer's significant reductions in the brain's ability to use glucose. His study was so compelling because it took young women, and I mean women in their mid-20s who had polycystic ovary syndrome, which is absolutely a condition of insulin resistance. Many don't look at it that way, but it absolutely is. And women without polycystic ovary syndrome and the young women with PCOS, which is to say some degree of insulin resistance, had significant reductions in their brain glucose use and mild but significant reductions in cognitive function. So all these bulletproof 20-year-olds who are thinking that any discussions of metabolic health don't apply to them, I would say you're wrong and the bill comes due. And so best to start changing habits now uh, and, and have that ounce of prevention uh, because it's much more difficult to reverse course. And indeed, uh, there are, in some instances, a point of no return. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to explore in all of that. Um, we talk, you know, if you're not a high-endurance athlete opting for an incredible performance and working out all day, um, you probably can't get away for too long with carb loading, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Well, I would even say these competitive athletes, um, and you had Professor Tim Noakes on previously, he's one of the most outspoken advocates of this view, especially his personal experience where he was an extremely avid runner who had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And so there's this myth of, of, uh, of being able, indulging in carbohydrates because you think you've earned it in a way there's this sort of pervasive idea that I'm working out and so I can eat this more. It's not even viewed as an indulgence. It is, I need this, this is what I need. So I would say for those individuals who are thinking that, uh, I would say, again, I hate that this might be a tangent and get us off topic, but uh, learn to dose your carbohydrates appropriately and leverage them during your workouts and not in the interim. Okay. There's a lot in that, isn't there? Because we've still yes, got much, that cognitive. No, no, but we've got that dissonance. We've got the messaging out there. And so many people, you know, I remember going on, on holiday a couple of years ago and, you know, I'm a curvy woman, you know, I've got a waist, yeah. but there's more on me than I want. I got, I know we talked before we opened the mics and everyone knows because I've exposed my story on this podcast, but I was at a swimming pool and I was saying, oh, I just don't know where this is coming from. And this lean 40-year-old guy said, well, you just have to quit eating. You just have to oh. eat less. And, you know, I get so tired of that. He said, well, clearly you're okay with being the way you are because you would change it if you... Oh. And, you know, I just said... What a smug prick. Oh, yeah, my yeah. heavens. But you get all of these lean guys, testosterone-fed, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they all do the same thing. I was saying in one of my other podcasts... You know, I was running in the park. Well, I don't run, really. I was power walking, and this guy was running. And we stopped, and we were talking, and he was saying, oh, you just said eat less, move more. And it's that whole messaging yep. that gets out yep. there. So how do you flip that and say glycogen, insulin, and moderate your carbs? Like, how do you mm -hmm. make yourself metabolically flexible when you're in your 30s and your 40s so that you won't have this car crash that I experienced at menopause? Yes, Yes. So there is, there is a, 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 without a doubt, a smugness that comes with those people who are fortunate to be naturally lean. Now, there's a myth there or a misunderstanding that that means they have a higher metabolic rate. Metabolic rate has nothing to do with it. In fact, the Baltimore Longitudinal Study, I invite anyone to look this up, they found the most compelling evidence against this idea and I know this isn't what you ask, and I promise I'll get to what you asked, but uh, people will invoke a higher metabolic rate as, a def as an explanation for why they're lean or in contrast for why they're overweight. Well, I got married and, and my metabolism slowed and so I gained weight. It's not metabolic rate. In fact, so this study measured a, a group of men, middle-aged men, and they at year zero and followed them for 10 years 
and they measured their metabolic rate and they found that the metabolic rate of the individual in no way predicted who gained the most or least amount of weight. If it were all about metabolic rate, you would have expected that those at year zero with the highest metabolic rate would have gained the least or maybe even lost weight. In contrast, those with lowest metabolic rate would have gained the most, and that is not at all how it played out, not, not whatsoever. So metabolic rate is not the determinant. However, now to your point about metabolic flexibility, they did find that respiratory exchange ratio, RER, which is a measurement of which fuel you're predominantly using, glucose or fats. Those are the two main fuels of the human metabolic engine. That is what determined who gained the most weight. And in other words, they found that the people who were sugar burning, I like to say, or glucose burning, so using glucose as their predominant fuel, were significantly more likely to gain more weight than those who were fat burning or using fat as their primary fuel. And that is reflected in this term metabolic flexibility. So someone who is metabolically flexible <clears throat> will eat a starchy sugary meal and they will go into glucose burning or sugar burning mode. A few hours later, they shift to fat burning mode when they're fasting. Uh, so to speak, you know, a few hours after they're eating, enter, entering into that fasting phase. So they are able to flexibly shift between these two fuels. Someone who's metabolically inflexible is stuck in sugar burning mode. So they eat a starchy sugary meal and their bodies relying mostly on glucose. And then several hours later, when they've entered the so-called fasting phase, they are still burning predominantly glucose. But and why so does that luck. switch get get mm. stuck? Because oh, I yeah. mine. I was 20 grams keto for the first two years and then three years. I don't want to keep repeating my story because my audience is going to go, okay, we know already. But <laughs> for people, they're just discovering the big middle because you're on it. I've been keto-ish, relaxed the last three years. But I had a shock the other day. I had some deep blood tests and... I, my, I've got insulin resistance, apparently. So where does mm -hmm. that come from that the, the switch didn't flip? Although yep. I do have yep. to tell you as well that at the, very, at the very last minute, the GP who was ordering the test said, we're going to work in a celiac screen as well. So for 14 days, you're going to have to eat stuff you don't normally eat, pasta and bread, which mm -hmm. I'm wondering, did that skew the results? Well, that undid you, unfortunately. And so I would say those blood results where you're concluding based on your triglyceride HDL ratio, which is a good marker of how insulin sensitive someone is, the fact that you got a so-called bad score, I would be completely convinced it's because you were forced to load up the carbohydrates because if you're spiking insulin, you're spiking your triglycerides. Uh, now to, to, directly answer your question with regards to metabolic flexibility and how the switch gets gummed up um, that allows the shifting between sugar burning and fat burning. It is all about insulin. Insulin dictates the fuel the, the, the body is using. It dictates energy use in the body. If insulin is elevated, the body has no choice. It stops fat burning and, and then relies mostly on sugar burning. If insulin is low, the body has no choice it is relying mostly on fat burning and has turned glucose or sugar burning as the, the secondary fuel. So the key to metabolic flexibility is staying insulin sensitive and keeping your, in, or, or getting insulin sensitive, which is very, very doable uh, in, in anyone, uh, and then allowing the body to shift between those two fuels. But the thing is, and I'm only saying this because it'll help other menopausal, you know, perimenopausal, menopausal mm -hmm. and postmenopausal women, because I talk to all my friends and they're trying to do what I do, which is 24 hour fast, 26 hour fast to get the autophagy going. And mm -hmm. they just say, well, it's just not working. It's not changing. So there's something. And I know that you talk a lot about that paper that you discovered that took you away from exploring muscle and leaning toward fat. Um, that was all about how fat cells are endocrine. They have an endocrinal aspect en endocrine. to them. Mm -hmm. Endocrine. I, I'm mm -hmm. always thinking endocrinologist, so I'm probably saying so. <laughs> so endocrine. They have an end. Uh. So talk about that, please. Because when I read that, when I was listening to it, I was going, wow, why don't more of mm -hmm. us know that? And the difference between white fat and brown fat and free radicals and that whole piece is fascinating. Yes, yes. So uh, 
let me make a note. Yes. So with the endocrine aspect of the fat cell, I'm, I'm delighted that left an impression on you because it sure did on me. I, I, as a master's student, my thesis was looking at the cardiorespiratory consequences of, um, of, of weight gain, basically looking at aerobic fitness in individuals who gained weight. And a part of what I was looking into was inflammation that was starting to become increasingly discussed in the late 90s, early 2000s. It, uh, of course, has become uh, wildly invoked nowadays, and I would even say uh, excessively invoked. People want to blame inflammation for everything, and I don't think that's appropriate. But nevertheless, um, I was, I'd stumbled across a paper that had just been published a few years prior about how the growing fat cell starts to release pro-inflammatory cytokines or pro-inflammatory proteins. And a protein is, uh, if, if you have one cell or one tissue releasing proteins and it is then influencing another tissue somewhere else, that is the definition of an endocrine organ. That's what the thyroid gland is doing, the adrenal glands, the gonads, the ovaries and testes. Those are endocrine because they release molecules that are telling other tissues in other parts of the body to do something. Well, I mean, everyone's sense of fat is that it's just this inert storage yep. depot. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You, you, not only is fat contributing to inflammation for better and for worse, mostly for worse, fat is also absolutely essential. And I mean essential exclamation mark to human fertility. The reason a, a young woman especially as she gets excessively lean, she then becomes infertile because you must have hormones coming from the fat tissue to even allow the brain to then allow the ovaries to induce ovulation. You literally stop fertility if there isn't enough fat because the brain needs those hormones from the fat tissue. It's basically like the brain is saying, okay, body, you want to get potentially pregnant? Pregnancy is a very expensive process, energetically expensive, calorically expensive. You have to grow another little human and then feed that little human, you know, under typical conditions for a considerable time after. I need to make sure you have enough energy in your body. Well, fat cells are energy depots. There's no question about that, but they're far more than that, where the brain is waiting for the fat cells to tell them we have enough fat we can get pregnant now. But if you rob that signal away, if you intervene, even in human instances where there are genetic mutations in this hormone, in fact, it's a hormone called leptin that everyone's heard about. If there's not enough leptin or leptin isn't working, this person can never be fertile unless they bring the leptin back up. So, uh, and, and even other instances, other but examples Leptin is of the this, satiety hormone, isn't it? And well, that's what we say, but, but we could- Mm -hmm. That's right. That's absolutely correct. But it's also selling leptin very short. Leptin has effects that go far beyond just satiety. In fact, I would say that's a more modest aspect of it. It's far more fundamental aspect is inducing fertility in men and women. It's just women need more leptin than men because women have to bear the metabolic burden of the pregnancy. The man's job is quite simple. The woman's job is very complex when it comes to fertility. Yeah, I mean, so layered, so many nuance. I mean, the, the human body is so complex. And, you know, you mentioned infertility. I don't think I had PCOS, but I'm just going to put another thing into the mix because most of the women who are baby boomers my age, the big middle years as I've defined mm -hmm. them, you know, 40s through 70s, we grew up in the Jane Fonda, Adele Davis, you know, conserve calories. I've, I've, I'm a, an accountant of calories. That's how I grew up. Mm, and it was mm -hmm. all about staying lean. And it wasn't to impress the boys or anything. It's just the way we were conditioned. You know, we never ate fat. We never allowed ourselves as teenagers and in our 20s. We do the two-hour, I used to call them suicide aerobics classes um, because it would be the Jane Fonda style, high impact, mm -hmm. and we'd mm -hmm. all go nuts. And then we wouldn't eat for a couple of days. And then we might break our fast two days down the line by going to the bar and having drinks and dancing. Mm -hmm. But this is, you know, I grew up on the Canada-US border. This is, this is how it was. And a lot, of, a lot of the women my age who are now postmenopausal or hitting menopause, they're suddenly spun around completely 
by all of this. And a lot of them too went through miscarriages. I've had four miscarriages. And mm. I'm wondering if that was constantly buying in this dogma, no fat. I mean, I only introduced any butter into my diet when I went keto. After I mm -hmm. had this autoimmune experience, you know, Hashimoto's at menopause, and I had this two-year battle with seronegative rheumatoid arthritis that, wow, that was wild. And I went on all these toxic drugs. So, you know, I'm just wondering how many women are setting themselves up because we've got the growing vegan trend. I mm -hmm, was complete mm -hmm. vegetarian, maybe a morsel of fish every two years. That was pretty much it. And then at menopause, everything erupted. Everything went wrong. And is it because I withheld fat and swallowed that dogma? Low fat, no fat, no sugar. You know, still had fun somehow. I'm not sure mm -hmm. how now mm -hmm. when I'm talking about it. People just think, oh, she must have been fun to be around. But, you know. <laughs> you. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, um, I do think that our vilifying of fat from the 1970s on, especially um, maybe I think as early as the, the 50s, perhaps, I do think that has contributed to uh, a, a fundamental, a massive change in how we view food. It also provided perverse incentives for food manufacturers to create junk that they could label as healthy and indeed uh, get stamps of approval um, that it's healthy from organizations like the American Diabetes or American Heart by just simply cutting the fat and being as liberal with anything else as they wanted. And then as it eventually morphed into cutting saturated fats in, and then uh, replacing them with polyunsaturated fats from seed oil sources. And everyone who uh, tuned in for Tucker Goodrich's conversation with you would have um, had their fill of that topic, which I think is, I think he's the right person to talk about it. Uh, we, we made all the wrong changes, unfortunately. And, and now we have reached, now we're, well, I said earlier, the bill comes due and, and where the human diet has become a diet mostly of refined starches and refined oils, I think that's a, that is a considerable problem because we are spiking insulin constantly with these refined starches and we are providing very high levels of a very unhealthy fat from these seed oils that the body in a way doesn't know what to do with. It certainly stores it quite readily um, yeah. So in that sense, it knows what to do with it. But this is a fat that is not benign that we're eating. Not only is it helping us get fatter, but it's also helping us get sicker. And so I would never want anyone to think that I am just an advocate of carte blanche, eat any kind of fat as much as you want. No, no, no. Um, I would say fat should be a part of the diet. We do have, in fact, a biological need for it. Um, and I like it that it has a little or no effect on insulin. It doesn't really move the insulin needle much, but focus on the natural fats, fruit fats, that's coconuts, avocados, olives, and animal fats. These are fats that we as humans have been eating since time immemorial. And thus, I would say we are well adapted to them. So I was, I was setting, setting the stage for miscarriages by denying my body the fat that it needed even though if you were Perhaps. looking at me walking down the street no because I was mainlining plants and I was I think loads of fructose I was addicted mm. to the the sugar fruit you know you have two nectarines why do you just have mm -hmm. to have one mm -hmm. at 10 mm -hmm. in the morning so and also that whole thinking about you know six small meals and grab a handful of almonds and you've got to prime the metabolic pump you know we went through in the last 75 yeah. years so much rubbish and yes, now that I, I hate yes i i do think i i realized you'd mentioned vegetarianism I would say this quite strongly because I am so, it's so unfortunate how many young women, especially I see get seduced by this ideology. Uh, a purely vegan diet is incompatible with human survival, let alone optimal function. And I mean that a human cannot survive on a purely vegan diet. And if, if they are, then they are privileged enough to be the elite where they are educated enough to know what they are deficient in because they will be when they are wealthy enough to afford the high quality supplements to make up for it. And, and it would they really have to get to the deep science in order to get the best supplements? And yes. would you just be spending half an hour every morning, you know, taking yep. all that stuff? Alternatively, eat a little beef, 
and you've got everything you need. And, and that truly is the solution. So I, now I, I'm very careful saying this. If, if a woman were adhering to a, a very strict vegetarian, if not vegan diet, um, it wouldn't surprise me if she were having miscarriages. And I would in fact say that's the least of her concerns. Uh, it would, I would be worried that she's suffering from iron deficiency anemia. Yeah. Alternatively, that she's suffering from another disorder less well-known called pernicious anemia, which is what's an absence that, What's of the B difference with that one? What's... Mm -hmm. Yes. Does so that just pernicious mean it's anemia, more sticky? <laughs> more pernicious? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is certainly uh, more nuanced where that is a deficiency of vitamin B12, um, which you cannot get from any plant source. You have to get that from an animal source. Uh, but it, an absence of B12 means the body can't use folate. So even if you're getting all the broccoli and spinach and all that folate, you cannot um, have cells, especially the rapidly dividing cells of a fetus. The reason they emphasize a woman eating so much folate is you have to have folate for these cells to divide. And if you don't have either enough folate, which you can get through plants, but if you don't have enough vitamin B12, you can't use the folate. And so all those rapidly dividing cells that is the baby to be, well, unfortunately, it will not get to that point because you aren't allowing the cells to divide. You have to have, and, that, and so to bring in the anemia aspect of it in the mom's body, it would manifest, or the child who's being raised on a vegan diet, unfortunately, um, they will have pernicious anemia because there won't be enough red blood cells or any other cell because the red blood cells are trying to replicate and produce themselves. They just can never divide. So you don't have enough. And then the God. anemia ensues. I got on a call with a woman. I don't know her at all, but we got chattering away. You know, it's sort of my <laughs> MO. And she was talking about her grand, she was really worried because her two daughters were strict vegan and they were mm. raising her three-year-old grandson as a vegan. Oh, in fact, I believe that's criminal. But you know, the, the thing is though, every shiny women's magazine, every health journal that you read, you get online and depending on where you're going for your information, all you're hearing about is plant-based, this, that. And we yep. know there's this huge push within the VC world, in the, in the financial world, World Economic Forum, everybody's pushing the plant-based meats and now the cell-based meats where- Oh my heavens. Yeah, I mean, my problem with all, you know, I, it's so difficult for me because I was an ethical vegetarian. You know, I love animals so much. It's, it's funny, the two cats I have haven't jumped up on the table yet. But I find, you know, I'm from that aspect of it, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the way we factory farm, we don't honor the animals. It's mm -hmm. horrific what we do to animals. And, you know, anyway, and we don't even respect the farmers that put in all the hours. So we need to change our food system. Mm -hmm. But I'm just really skeptical about the way we're going. All of this money is piling in to what, have these big vats of cells from a cow to make cell-based meat marinated in what, with pea protein all over it? I don't know. Oh my goodness, I know. I agree. I, I, I certainly cannot speak to the perhaps, and I do mean this, it, 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 it is perhaps quite likely, I can't speak to the sinister politics and even market forces that would be involved, that's just too far from my area of expertise, though I do have opinions on the matter. I would say there's much more money to be made as we make things more artificial than natural. And I think it's valid and, and, and worthwhile for us to be that cynical. But even from, I'll get back to my forte, the physiological view of things, it is absolutely laughable to think that a person can obtain all of their protein needs from plant sources. And, and in fact, it's beyond laughable. It's harmful. The more we refine proteins to get them from very protein poor sources like pea or, or pumpkin seed or whatever the hell other plant proteins there are these days, you are trying to get protein from something that has very, very little protein in it naturally. And so you have to take say a thousand peas and distill that protein in order to get one serving of protein. Unfortunately, in the process of concentrating the, that pea, you also get things you don't want, like the minerals that are inherent to every plant. And that is why uh, uh, plant proteins have potentially harmful levels of heavy metals like lead and arsenic. And I would invite anyone to look up 
a third party analysis on this topic by going to a website called the Clean Label Project. They quantified the amount of heavy metals and it is the plant proteins that are the big offenders. No surprise there, of course. Also, when you're trying to get protein from plants, you are not getting it the way God intended, which is with fat. Protein is supposed to come with fat and that works better. Protein and fat together is more anabolic than protein alone. That has been quantified at the muscle. Fat also helps the body digest protein better. So even if someone's getting a protein like whey, which is an animal protein and it is the best with egg whites that a person can eat, Someone may have, they may say that the, the, the whey protein upsets their stomach. And my response is always, well, then eat it with fat the way it's supposed to come. And sure enough, when you eat protein with fat, you digest the protein better. This has been shown. Bile acids that are typically involved in fat digestion also improve protein digestion. They help those enzymes in the guts work better than they would otherwise. We are not meant to get our protein from plants and, and one well, last I mean, this, comment. This takes, oh, go ahead, go ahead, please. Oh, well, uh, you would mention the cell-based meats. Yes. I grow muscle cells in my lab across the hall, just behind me now. We are growing muscle cells all the time. That is a shockingly intensive process that involves a myriad of chemicals, hormones included, and everyone's afraid of the hormones that are in their beef. That's nothing compared to the hormones we have to put on these cells to make them grow in such an artificial environment. And not to mention the sheer amount of energy. I would, I don't know, this has been quantified, but calorie for calorie, if you were to measure the amount of say electricity and the subsequent carbon footprint that comes from it, that we need to grow say a pound of meat from muscle meat in my lab, I bet it is orders of magnitude more than what you need for just say a cow to grow its own meat by eating the grass out in the pasture. Now, again, I echo your sentiments. This is not to say that there aren't problems with the way we do it nowadays, but I think that just means we need to find a way to do it better, but while acknowledging the reality that a human cannot thrive in the absence of animal products. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we could go on and on and I could mention the climate change, but this isn't about that because I want to get back to your expertise. Not that that wasn't great, uh, a tangent I introduced, but the infertility, just just mm -hmm. picking that up because I've got all these threads dangling, the infertility, that could have been the, I mean, the autoimmunity that I experienced at menopause after four miscarriages, you know, first one in my 20s, then another one in my 30s, couple in my early 40s. Did that have a link then to the lack of fat, do you think, and the anti-nutrients in plants? Just not having any animal protein at all. So, yeah, so there are two things here. I, I Very, very cautiously, I would say I could envision a mechanism whereby um, if you were predominantly vegetarian, that might have contributed to miscarriages. And, and I would just invoke the vitamin B12 situation that I described earlier, that you might have been B12 deficient. Um, and then with regards to menopause and, and your uh, autoimmunity, one of the fascinating aspects of the female body and autoimmune disorders is the relevance of estrogen. You can take women who are fertile and who have an autoimmune disease, and they will notice that when they're pregnant, their autoimmunity just gets significantly better. And this is very much related to the inherent changes in estrogen. Estrogen appears to be protective in a way against autoimmune problems. And so a woman may have a higher need for higher estrogen levels. And then as the estrogen starts to subside with menopause, that may be a trigger, sufficient yeah. trigger because even then, most autoimmunities require an environmental trigger. It's not something that happens in isolation. There's some external cue, and then that contributing or, or adding with along with the internal cue, the reduction in estrogen may be enough to push an autoimmunity um, that had been almost active into fully active. And then one other thing I'll say, because I can't help it because I love fat cells so much, <laughs> estrogen is very... Um, actually facilitates fat burning. Estrogen is interesting because as a little girl starts to go through puberty, estrogen will tell her where to store fat. It's not making her get fatter. It's just telling her where to put the fat that she's naturally going to be storing. And then 
overall, estrogen has a fairly protective effect on, on body fat. And so as the female body starts to lose the estrogen during menopause, she has two things happen. One, she starts to store her fat differently because it's estrogen that tells the body where to store fat. So now she'll store it less perhaps on breast and hips and more centrally. And second, she loses that kind of fat burning effect of the estrogens themselves. And now it makes it easier for her to gain weight. Yeah, it's such a, a double puzzle. whammy. Yeah, double whammy. And it, I mean, my friends and I were all feeling it to different degrees. Now, it was interesting what you said about puberty. I was listening to, you know, I was attending so many of your metabolic classrooms, mm-hmm. which you can access through your website. It's so great. I mean, I was exhausted the last two days, just mainlining <laughs> all of these lessons. But you were oh, saying... poor the, girl. No, no, but it's great. I mean, my head's swimming. So we'll see how much of it sticks. But I did write this down. The number of fat cells you have is set by the time you finish puberty. And yes. I love that you define puberty completely differently than, than most people. Most people define it far too early um, and they're wrong. Uh, puberty, yes, so that's true. Most people will have their fat, numbers, their fat cell numbers set by the time puberty has wrapped up and now they've officially entered adulthood. Whatever that fat cell number is, it's done. For the most part, until their 60s and 70s, and then they start actually losing fat cells, which is not as nice as a process as it may seem, actually, um, because fat cells in a way are protective against insulin resistance, but that's a, a bit of a tangent. But yes, uh, puberty ends in late teens for girls and early 20s for boys. That is the typical timeline. Now, of course, you can have early bloomers who wrap that up a little sooner um, or late developers who are on the later end, but that's typically the timeline. Whereas we often look at it as early teens for girls and mid-teens for boys, that's just not true. Okay. And now let's get to the white fat versus brown fat. Mm. And I know you talk about the glycogen to insulin ratio. Um, I want, I'd love you to, to get into both of those. You know, if you can boil down the explanations of that, the difference between white and brown and the Mm -hmm. free radical impact and, and the fact that the cell can blow up at some point and release free fatty acids. That was wow as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the fat. So yeah. So you're bringing in a lot of topics. Let me, let me focus on the ones. Oh no, no. Well, it's wonderful of course, because I like talking about all of them. Uh, So white fat and brown fat is, is one of the ways we can distinguish are fat depots. Now there are a couple other different ways of identifying fat as well, but white fat and brown fat is the most interesting to uh, a scientist who's a bioenergetics metabolism guy like I am. The metabolic rate in white, so, so if I were to pull a biopsy from someone's belly area, which we do here at my laboratory on campus, it is in fact a, a very white fat it's, it's quite white, now, not as white as a paper, it's a little more yellowish than that compared to a piece of paper, um, but it's, it's quite white. In contrast, in, in humans, we have throughout our thoracic cavity, so this is up around our rib cage area and up into our upper clavicle area, we have these small little pockets of, of fat that if we were to pull out, it are in fact quite brown. It's a very dark reddish, rich brown color. And we would look at these two types of fat and acknowledge on one hand that they are in fact both fat cells while acknowledging on the other, they look nothing alike. The difference in appearance has everything to do with uh, an organelle or something within a cell called the mitochondria. Everyone has likely heard of the mitochondria at least in their freshman biology class. But these are the battery packs, aren't they, of the cell? Yep, yep, that's right. Yep, the energy or the powerhouse of the cell. It is where energy, it is where nutrients are burned. So when I say we're burning glucose or burning fat or even burning ketones, it's in the mitochondria that we burn anything. And, And we burn it for energy. And we convert this nutrient into something else that the cell can use to get work done. In white fat, that process is happening very, very little. The metabolic rate in fat tissue is exceedingly low. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's in large part because it has very, very little mitochondria. It's just a cell that isn't built to burn fat. It's built more to store it in addition to other things, of course, that we've mentioned. But just with regards to fat metabolism, white fat cells want to store fat. Brown fat cells are enriched with mitochondria, and these are fat cells that are built to burn fat. And they do so not because the cell needs the energy 
to get work done, the brown fat is burning fat and glucose to create heat. And so that is, that is the, the kind of evolutionary aspects of it. Brown fat burns a high amount of energy. It has a high metabolic rate, but it doesn't convert those nutrients into working energy in the cell. It converts it into heat, which is in fact kind of a waste product of energy or of metabolism. But you think about it in terms of human evolution or not human evolution, human development, going from infant to adult, we have a relatively high amount of brown fat when we're young, with newborn in particular, when we also happen to have very little muscle. And so it's quite genius because if an infant, a newborn is exposed to the cold, the baby doesn't have enough muscle to shiver. But thankfully it has plenty of brown adipose tissue to make its own heat. And so as baby starts oh, wow. to grow and get progressively leaner, what happens is it starts to lose its brown fat. As an adult, we have significantly less brown fat than we did when we were newborn because we also have so much more muscle. And so now if we get cold, rather than relying on our brown fat to create heat, we rely on our muscles and they start shivering and twitching and just the inherent inefficiencies in metabolism in the cell mean that we create a little more heat and the body warms up. Now, one interesting thing about the human body is that we have all our brown fat along this thoracic cavity and clavicle. They're actually, it's surrounding our carotid arteries and veins, the, the, the arteries that are moving blood up to our brain. It's tempting to speculate that it might be enriched in this area because if we're getting really cold, one way to make sure that the brain is getting warm blood is to heat the blood up on the way, heat the blood as it goes up because the brain can't shiver. You know, the rest of the body can shiver and generate heat. There's no muscles in the brain to shiver and create heat in the brain, in the skull. And so we are, we have all this, this kind of furnace of brown fat around these blood vessels sending warm blood up to the brain. So when we're cold, we make sure the brain gets what it needs. Okay. And what about the, what about glycogen and the interplay with insulin? Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so you're saying glycogen, I think you actually mean glucagon. Oh, yes, in, of in course the, I do. In the you past, know? well, not that glycogen isn't a thing. Um, okay. but I'm but thinking glucagon completely. Yep, yep. so pre previously, and, and if someone wants more detail, just type, go to YouTube and type in Bickman glucagon and you'll find my talk on it. But uh, uh, the insulin to glucagon ratio, I think is a valuable, if perhaps purely academic, um, way of understanding which kind of metabolic state we're in. Are we in storage mode or are we in burning mode? Because insulin and glucagon are opposites when it comes to these processes where insulin wants the body to store energy, glucagon wants the body to use energy. And I, in my original talk on this subject, I wanted to bring in glucagon because at the time I was struck by how many people were adopting low carbohydrate diets and at the same time encouraging themselves and others to avoid protein and, and just be eating fat. And I thought that is a very, very bizarre way of eating uh, because while fat is certainly essential, it's very nutritious and nourishing, you are making something unnatural by taking fat away from protein because in nature, most fats come with protein. And I think that's how they should be eaten. And so I, I took it sort of an academic undertaking to look at what happens to glucagon. And, and sure enough, that was the, the heart of the matter. When someone eats protein, you do often get a spike in insulin. Now, the magnitude of that, that spike will depend on whether they're eating the protein with carbohydrates or not. If you're getting protein with carbohydrate, then you have a much more significant insulin spike. If it's just carbo, uh, if it's just protein on its own or protein with fat, it's much more modest. But even then, that modest increase in insulin that you get when you're eating protein um, in the context of, say, a lower carbohydrate diet, it is matched or surpassed by an, uh, an equal to or greater rise in glucagon, insulin's opposite. And so while insulin would be attempting to tell the fat cell to store energy and perhaps attempting to tell the liver to stop making ketones, glucagon is there to offset that effect, telling the fat cell to shrink and telling the liver to indeed make ketones after all. So I, uh, I so we're back to metabolic flexibility and yeah, trying yes, to find that sweet yeah. spot really where, where everything's cooking on gas. 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah well said. <laughs> because, you know, I just think that flipping the switch and is, is low-carbing and time-restricted eating, stroke, fasting, whatever you want to call it, not just not eating for a few hours, but, you know, having a proper 24-hour mm-hmm. mm-hmm. fast or, well, I'm talking too much. You tell me what your position is on, on how you can manage your insulin through restricting food. Yes, yes. So I think without a doubt, you you hit the nail on the head. If someone wants to control insulin, and I think everyone should, the most effective and I would say practical way of doing this is by controlling carbohydrates. Step one, control carbohydrates. Now, you we've mentioned, we've talked a little bit about the calories in, calories out idea. I'm not saying that won't work. Indeed, if someone starts eating a lot less calories, you will improve your insulin sensitivity and your insulin will come down. You just can't maintain it because hunger always wins. And so if your dietary strategy is based on depriving yourself and forcing yourself to be hungry, you will lose. Hunger always wins. And so while I do think calories have a value, I think it is counterproductive if even perhaps harmful to focus on calories as the sole outcome, attempting to count calories and attempting to constantly be in a calorie, in a a negative caloric balance. I think hunger will always win. So don't worry about the calorie number. Let that work itself out. Control carbohydrates, step number one. And then step two and three for me is encouraging protein and fat in the diet. And then I would add to that, intermittent fast, don't feel the need to eat all the time. It's If you're not hungry for breakfast, then don't eat breakfast. Have a cup of tea or something similar. I would say if someone's schedule and family or relationship dynamics allow, I actually like to invoke the evidence that fasting on the later end of the day is more effective than fasting on the front end of the day. So if someone were able to fast through dinner, that is more effective than fasting through breakfast. I would just say it's harder to do that. I know for me, I'm a family man. I'm not going to sit around the table and talk with my wife and children while they're eating and I'm just staring at them. You know, I will not do that. Even if I know there's a metabolic benefit, I will have dinner with my family because that's my priority in life. Exactly, and your kids need you to talk to them and see you as a role model. But I completely get that. But I know with me, I'm trying to to shift the clock a little bit and start having breakfast because I'm sort Mm -hmm. of that one meal a day. I mean, that's the thing. You get hooked on this. And I haven't really had the benefit. The cognitive bump is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, I am no longer hungry, which is brilliant. You know, Mm so... I'm not thinking, I mean, I've been fasting since when? Last night, seven o'clock. And I'm not even hungry. So, mm-hmm. I mean, something's out of whack with me because I haven't had that whoosh of, of the poundage leaving my body. But, mm. you know, I'm on it. I'm trying to mix things up, follow the advice. Or, or do you just have to do a long fast, you know, five days to get back on top of the insulin from my 14 days of ingesting carbs, unusually? Well, that's a good question. No, no, I wouldn't think so. Typically, I believe that the maximal value comes um, once you've cleared your liver out of glycogen. Now, so I am using that term now. So when you've cleared the liver out of all of its stored carbohydrate, that typically represents the shift where insulin has come down and now you're burning a lot of fat to the point of making ketones to, at a higher level or ketogenesis and being into ketosis. I would say in your case, one 24-hour fast would would be enough to kind of clear that out. Now, you do need to be careful with fasting, of course. It can go too far and just turn into a form of disordered eating where it's kind of binging and purging, where someone fasts to the point of being so hungry that they go crazy with food, and then they regret it, they feel sick, they have remorse, and then they have a new resolve to do it again, and I'm going to be better tomorrow, and I'm not going to end my fast with a, a binge of junk food. And then they 17 do again, donuts. And then they do <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. No. So, so I do think fasting needs to be, you need to be very careful with it. It can be an, an incredibly effective tool, but it can also, it's a double-edged sword. And so my sentiment on fasting is even more important than the length of time someone fasts is how you end your fast. So how you break your fast, what food you eat and how much of it you eat is more important than how long you do it for. 
So I strongly encourage people to have a solid plan and to listen and be patient with their bodies. Because I know when I've done a 24 hour fast and I go back to eating, I'm amazed at how little I actually need to eat before I feel full. It it does not take much. And and then I feel, I will feel full very, very quickly. The danger comes when I'm just saying to hell with um, how full I feel. I'm hungry and I want to indulge. And, and, and there's a little part of me that knows I'm going to regret it, but I do it anyway for that short-term um, gratification. Like when you did your cold cereal experiment. I laughed my head off oh, at my, that. My that was hilarious. Oh, can, my we talk, can we talk mini-wheats? Yes, yes. I, I, I am addicted to mini-wheats. So my name is Ben Bickman, and I am addicted to mini-wheats. <laughs> mini so You've got a 12-step program happening now. Yes, yeah, so I, in, indeed... We one of the reasons we don't have cereal in the house, this cold cereal, is because one, I can't trust myself with it, and two, I don't want my children eating it anyway. And so we simply have a culture in my family where that is just not breakfast. Breakfast is not cold cereal. It's a homemade breakfast of some kind. Now, this experiment, I ended up one evening we were we had these mini wheats in the house, and and I don't know it was a lapse of judgment on my part that they ever got in through the front door and my naive <laughs> assumption that it would be a treat for the kids and I could control myself and not have any. Well, I, I, I gave in. I caved like I always do. I ended up having one bowl and sure enough, it turned into three big hearty bowls and I was sick to my stomach. I'd eaten so much and my glucose stayed elevated for roughly, it was certainly over 20 hours, bordering on 30 hours until my glucose came back to normal. So you wear a monitor, a glucometer. I do. Yes, I have a continuous glucose monitor that I wear just by nature of me being the um, principal investigator in this metabolism lab. I'm able to get get these through consulting arrangements that I have. Um, And so I was testing my glucose for the entire time. And I'm a lean individual with very, very low risk of diabetes. I have no family history of it whatsoever. And it took me over 20 hours to clear all of that glucose and so I would hope that would be a note of caution to anyone else. That, and, and mind you, this is a kind of cereal that a dogmatic dietitian would tell his or her diabetic client that they can indulge in because it has low fat and the American Heart Association approves it. Oh, I know. Well, Dietitians Day the other day on Twitter, I was seeing uh, one, one more enlightened dietitian was saying, oh, can you bear it? These people are giving out donuts at the hospital where they're doing the COVID tests. It's you know? crazy. They hide behind this idiotic maxim of moderation in all things. Well, tell that to an alcoholic who say, well, you can have some wine, just moderate yourself. What, what asinine um, advice, because it, it refuses to acknowledge, acknowledge that people generally will fall into two camps. There are moderators, and then there are the rest of us that are abstainers. My wife is a moderator, one of that select few. We can have some pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. A very rare indulgence, indeed. Truly, truly very rare, but I love it. But I, I won't indulge because I can't moderate myself. She'll have her pint and she will just daintily eat 10 bites and then put the lid on and put it away in the oh, freezer. You and I are twins. I need to have the whole fish food container. I have and to have the yeah, whole pint. Yeah, absolutely. I can't stop. So it's easier for me to just never eat the first bite. And this, this is something St. Thomas Aquinas said, abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. And I love the genius in that sentiment because it is easier for me to never even have the first bite than it is to have a several bites and stop. Yeah, I'm the same as you. And it's it's that old thing, you know, the, the biggest challenge is when you're going out to do your shop. I mean, hopefully you're not getting it delivered because you should be going out and carrying those heavy bags back mm-hmm. is what I tell myself. But it's just literally not being hungry when you're in the grocery store and picking up because when I was a veggie, mm-hmm. I was picking up all of those allegedly good you know, packets of really chemicals and, you know, a few seeds on a cracker. And you really need to marshal all of your mental resources to go and just stick to getting the supplies you need that are going to give you the self-care that you can impose on yourself and the household mm-hmm. in general. Because if I had a bag of kettle chips in the cupboard, they oh. would be calling me all day, all night until they were no longer there. Yep. Yep. Same. That's exactly right. I, I just can't start. 
And the thing is, once you get into this way of abstaining, it becomes second nature. I mean, you just do mm -hmm. it because you know you feel so terrible if you do eat the chips. And it's not just the beating up, but I mean, for me, I clearly need to, you know, I need to manage my, my insulin levels. I can't be eating things that are going to spike my insulin. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I, th I think there's a beautiful lesson um, that touches on many aspects of human nature, Th this this never-ending struggle to to temper the short-term gratification with the known consequence, and and I we're talking about this in the context of diet, but I would like to think that as I am flexing these muscles of, moder of of abstinence with with regards to these indulgent behaviors where i can look at these cookies and know it's better for me to never eat a single bite of it because otherwise i'll eat the whole plate of them i i see this reflected in even say my interaction with my children i will have a moment of gratification if i lose my patience and just really lay into my child because i'm so angry at what they just did but no good will come of that I will regret having done it. My ch I will have in some way negatively impacted my relationship with my child. How much better if in that moment of temptation to, to have my outburst or, you know, the moment to indulge in the cookie, I can, I can check my behavior and yeah. realize, wait a minute, this will not have the desired out outcome, which is to help my child, say, improve their behavior. Um, and I will regret it. My child will regret it. I can temper this moment and then, um, behave better. Yeah, it's uh, about self-control, isn't it? And, yes. and seeing yes. the outcome, because I know when I see the cookies and the kettle chips, I know that that's going to set back all the efforts of the earlier week. And yes. it's going to perhaps start the carb roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, well said. And, and, and one interesting aspect with you as, you as we wrap up, I have seen instances of individuals who have been depriving low calorie for so long that when they adopt a low carbohydrate diet, they will gain a little weight and they get very worried. And I will just say, it's because you're actually eating enough energy now to be at a state your body wanted to be at in some instances, but that's not an easy pill to swallow. And I would, in those instances, once a person has controlled carbohydrates, they will reach typically a level, um, a plateau, and then I will, uh, they'll lose weight and then reach a plateau. And then when I say you've reached that plateau and you want to get off of it and the low carbohydrate isn't working, then typically leveraging the calories, I hate to say it, that becomes the next best strategy. And that can include um, intermittent fasting. That's a wonderful way to, to, to do that, to make sure that your calorie number now, not as the primary um, outcome, but as this follow-up outcome, now that you're using or starting to manipulate your calories, fasting is an optimal way of doing that. Because I, in fact, I never think there's value in counting. It's a tedious way that takes all the joy out of eating. Absolutely. And I love this way of eating now. I'm just not tempted. I'm not drinking half a bottle of wine like I used to mm -hmm. five years mm -hmm. ago. And, you know, but I, I will still have a glass socially if I'm out for dinner. Now, I do want to wrap this up because I know you've got another engagement, but I just want to say if there's one message or, you know, a message of three parts that you wanted to shout out to everyone from the rooftops. When you're looking around the world now and you're seeing that 88% of us are mm -hmm. pre-diabetic or on the way to type 2 diabetes and all the metabolic issues, what's your message? My message is we all should be aware of insulin resistance because it's very likely we or someone we care about has it. And upon acknowledging its prevalence, the most relevant strategy to address it is to control carbohydrates. If only for breakfast, just pick breakfast. At the very least, let that be one meal where you're eating very, very little, if, if perhaps none altogether, carbohydrate, and, and put that later in the day um, as a simple strategy. Let insulin has worked hard to come down overnight. Let it stay low for as long as possible. And that will be the best way you can improve your insulin sensitivity. Oh, and the one, the one, I'm so sorry, I've got one other thing that crept in, the role of exercise, because I was reading in all my research that you can give yourself insulin resistance, a, a measure of it, if you're sedentary for five consecutive days. Truth? Yes, yes, that's right. 
Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. So someone, you can take young, healthy, college-aged males and just force them to be sedentary and they and not change anything in their diet and they will become significantly more insulin resistant. And there are numerous aspects that play into this, but it also touches on the simple magic of the working muscle. When a muscle is moving, contracting and relaxing, it is able to pull in glucose without the need for insulin to help it do so. It has its own insulin independent uh, doorways to pull in the glucose. And so the glucose can come down, which allows the insulin to come down as well. And when insulin's down, the body becomes more sensitive. And it's a it's it's no more than what half an hour walk a day. Oh, just that's make right. sure you get that in. Just do something. Yep. So my answer to the question, what's the best exercise, is the one you will do. <laughs> Absolutely. Ben Bickman. He earned his PhD in bioenergetics. He's a scientist, professor at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. He researches the origins and the consequences of metabolic disorders. And his new book, which I'm sure is en route to my place here in London, is called Why We Get Sick. And everyone's raving about it. The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. Can't thank you enough. It's just been such a pleasure connecting with you and, and learning more from you, Ben. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, Susan. This was wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Really good. And thanks again uh, for listening to The Big Middle. Head to my website, susanflory.com, uh, to see how you too can help keep this podcast rolling along. We're going to be doing a lot more of these investigations into how we big middlers can keep ourselves optimal in terms of cardiometabolic health and have fun too. I mean, it's been fun talking to Ben and learning from him, hasn't it? Anyway, thanks so much. Until next time, ciao.